Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. But first, I want to remind you about our Young Adult Liturgy Conference. That is June 15th, 16th, and 17th. You can find out more information about it by going to www.betransfigured.com. And as of right now, we have early bird pricing, which was supposed to end at the end of this month, but we're extending it to the end of April. So if you want to go to our conference, you can get a $50 discount as long as you register sometime before the end of April. Also, I want to let you know that we have a couple of podcasts in our backlog that you might be interested in this week. They are Roman Candles Part 1 and 2. This is this is Season 1, Episode 39 and Episode 40. Uh, this is where Chris Carstens kind of walks through the liturgies of the Triduum. And I think you really would enjoy going back if you haven't listened to them already, listening to them again, especially if you're going to be going to the Easter Vigil. And uh, I am sorry I did not get a podcast out last week. Uh, my computer literally crashed and I had to go send it in and then recover it from the hard drive and all that type of stuff. So I will put out two episodes this week, one today and one either tomorrow or Wednesday. So again, I'm sorry that we did not get one out last week. This week we are talking about the baptismal font. What does it look like? Where is it located? Dennis kind of goes through some of this stuff. So without further ado, episode 29 of season two of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Siri, call Dennis. Just to confirm, you'd like to call Demi McNamara. Hey. <laughs> you got it pretty well. You got your last name Denis right, McNamara. But... Yeah. That's kind of the French pronunciation. Yeah, well, Denis, there's the one she in. She used to say Denis McNamara. <laughs> he must have trained her how to speak. Yeah. But I liked it. It had a little attitude. Little mm-hmm. attitude. Denis McNamara. McNamara. <laughs> I'm going to introduce myself that way from now on. Be like, McNamara. Dennis McNamara. Take that, Chris. <laughs> I'm also baptized. Take that, Jesse. You're, wait, what? I'm baptized. I'm also baptized. Oh, sorry. Are you? What, what name do you give this uh, child? Denis McNamara. <laughs> what are we here for? We're talking about the baptismal I font. I don't know. What the are baptismal we? font. All right. Because Chris, being the overlord taskmaster that he is, <laughs> makes me write things for Ettering's oh, bulletin all the time. And I'm like, Chris, yes, I'm so read, busy. And he's like, read, please, please. Read Denny McNamara in <laughs> Adoramus Bulletin. Yeah. He says, I have children to feed. If I don't fill Adoramus Bulletin, they're going to starve. Like, oh. oh, you've yeah. never asked me to write anything for Adoramus Bulletin, Chris? Well, you've just signed yourself up oh, right now, yeah. Jesse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Actually, what? we will do a, a, a story on the liturgy guys at Theology on Tap in Madison. Oh, yes. That's yes. coming up, too. Yes. So you'll... You'll find yourself in the bulletin there. All right, great. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Dennis. Yeah, I'm here too. Yeah. So uh, since I'm kind of a one-trick pony, I said, let me talk about architectural things. So we did one on the altar, and we did one on the ambo, both of which became podcasts. Now we have one on the font. These are the three sort of principal furnishings in a church. And Chris is very convinced of... 
the approach to liturgy using mystagogical catechesis. We have talked yes. about that before, but it does sound a bit confusing. Chris, tell me, what is mystagogical catechesis? Mystagogical catechesis is leading you from what you can see to what you can't see, from the outward to the inward, from the sign to the things signified. So, for instance, you love your wife. Yes. How does that become realized in real life? <laughs> <laughs> through outward signs. You get up when the kid pukes in the morning and you let her sleep and things like that, yeah, right? Yeah, I, so, I am on the vomit patrol. And so how, if someone said to you, you love your wife, and it's so obvious, it's not like some secret interior thing that you have to sit and pray about for an hour to hope God reveals this to you. You see you loving Marguerite. You and know, uh, there it is. Monsignor Manny would always give this example about how the, you'd be counseling the, the couple and the, the, the wife would say, but why don't you tell you me you love me? Well, you know that I love you. But you never, never tell, tell me. me that you, so the internal uh, sentiment or reality has to have an external uh, Jesse, uh, expression. How come you never tell me you love me? I told you I loved you on that coffee Actually, talk. you did on air that day. Okay. Yeah. Well, you yeah, haven't done I, it since. I anyway. I publicly expressed my love for you. <laughs> no, I hate you, Dennis. <laughs> Thank you. And that is obvious in your mystagogical activity as well. Anyway, we're talking about the sacramental system of the church. So outward things made of material, matter, stone, wood, oil, bread, all that stuff nonetheless can and should be used to make the inward, that is this sort of otherwise invisible reality known to the people who use them. And that applies to baptism as well. Why don't we just sit in a room alone and say, I wish I were baptized. What do you have? That, is that an actual baptism? No. Well, I guess you could talk about baptism at desire, but oh, that's, yeah, that's something else. Yeah, but something assuming else. that it's everything... Not a, it's not a sacramental baptism. Right. Yeah, what makes it a sacramental baptism? Sacramental signs and symbols. Bingo. Grace is conferred by... Signs confer grace by signifying. signifying, right? So the conferral of grace in the Catholic understanding is that the grace comes when the thing happens, when the pouring and the and all the matter and forms of the being baptized in the name of all three persons of the Trinity. Yes. And so you can extend that out. So not just water, but the place where baptism happens should show you how important the baptism is. Things matter. If it's a little plastic bowl from your favorite store, Crate and Barrel, or, or pseudo... Or Pottery Barn. Or Pottery Barn, sorry. Yeah, right. Oh, so I'm setting up a <laughs> there are different home furnishings war now. Yeah. Uh, this, this is one of my favorite uh, Dennis McNamara lines is, Architect, art and architecture are the visible form of theology. The built form of theology, yes. Oh, that's yeah. You can't. Yeah, I guess it wasn't that favorite. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Good job, Chris. I've been living my life by that maxim. And but that's, well, you were right. close. You were close. But anyway, the, what, what's so important about baptism anyway? Some guy pours water on your head. Big deal. It's the most important sacrament, right? Well, it's, it's the gateway to all the other sacraments. Yeah. It's a gateway sacrament. Yeah. <laughs> Just like marijuana. I had a friend who got baptized, and then he wanted all the other sacraments. I mean, <laughs> man. It's good, Jesse. Well, the, what, what's the symbolic thing? So you have this obvious external sign of pouring water, but what happens to you when you're baptized? You're you, washed clean? You're washed. You, uh, uh, you what, From original from sin. Original sin. Right? And personal sin. Yeah. You, uh, what else happens? You die. Yeah, almost like of, being drowned. Almost like being drowned. But then you get rescued and brought but, back to the Yeah, life. you get uh, brought to the surface and resurrected again, too. Boy. So those are the unseen realities. It's intense. Yeah, there's a whole section in the catechism about the effects of baptism. It's around, uh, you, you know all your paragraphs from the catechism. Do you know where that is? Oh, it 1080. Is 1080. That, I was, cut me off. <laughs> Sorry, you were going to prove yourself. I cheated and looked at my notes. Anyway. 
the birth of water in the Holy Spirit. So you become a child of God, you're grafted onto the mystical body, a whole new life uh, comes. And Justin Martyr talked about this being uh, an enlightenment. So the whole enlightenment of the Holy Spirit comes, oh, you get all these gifts of Doesn't even Spirit. talk about water like contains light in it? Yeah, and then it's, it contains a sort of light itself, makes yes. the child uh, of God enlightened with mm-hmm. all this you know, graces and attribute and everything. Now, water is a funny thing because do we like water, Chris? Do you like water? Yes. It's good, but it can be bad. I tried to ask Jesse if we could have a water talk. Uh, Instead of a coffee talk. Yeah, yeah. But he said no. So when you're on the nice calm day at the beach, well, let me go swim in the ocean. But when the hurricane comes and your house gets washed away, that's pretty rough, right? So water in the Old Testament is mostly kind of dangerous. What are some good examples there? Uh, the, the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea. Right, it's in the Jonah. way. Jonah. That yep, whale in the business. whale. Yep. Right. Then there's uh, uh, in the New Testament. There's Peter walking even, on even water. Even before that, before oh. the flood, the creation. Yeah. Noah, right? Oh yeah. Noah's Ark. Water is the way that almost all of the world's life is. God's mad. What does He send? Donuts? No. Water. Boom. It's threatening. <laughs> but then God sends a rainbow, which is refracted light through water molecules. Indeed. And nice, Jesse. And so that is a good thing. Right, so water all of a sudden is no longer a threat, but is the way that God shows that he's in right relationship with his people again. And the Jordan River is a barrier, right? The Israelites want to get across to the promised land, and they can't get through until God makes that happen. So You you mentioned this a couple podcasts ago about uh, the waters. Frozen at his touch. touch. And you know what's interesting? The cathedral in Knoxville, Tennessee, just opened last weekend. Oh, yeah, I've seen a lot of stuff It was dedicated, and... Uh, James McCreary, who's an architect, he knows some of the stuff. And the uh, the paving right outside the front door, so under the porch, going from outside to inside, has this gray and um, sort of silvery zigzaggy stone that's supposed to look like the ice bridge that gets you from the fallen world into the new garden of the church. It's the Pontifex. Cool. Yeah, he built an ice bridge there. Can we give a shout stone. out to Father Randy, too? Randy Stice, Liturgical Institute graduate. Yes. Oh, what now, did he do? He's a priest he's, of Knoxville. He and, was the liturgy director for the Diocese oh, really? of Knoxville. Yeah, mm-hmm. now, now he works for the USCCB's mm-hmm. oh, that's uh, Committee right. Did, yeah, that's so great. I imagine he had a hand so, in there. So there's oh, this yeah. kind of paradox in a lot of things, Old Testament, New Testament. Water is death, but then water is life. So Jesus takes up water and turns it around. What are you going to say, Chris? I was going to say, I probably said this before. Uh, do you remember this? Aiden Nichols. Uh, Tale of Two Documents. It's a great read. Have I ever mentioned that? No, this is the ictus thing from Tertullian. The fish. The fish. Yeah, so Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior in Greek means ictus, which is fish. Mm -hmm. So you got the little fish thing on the back of cars. And he says that we're born in the font as little fishes. After the example, the big fish. The big fish. Oh, my goodness. No, you never said that one before. That's really cool. Yeah. Aren't the windows in the cathedral and the cross a bunch of fish swimming toward the altar? Yeah. Yeah. Almost all of them are swimming towards the altar. One's going the wrong way. That's right. And he's eating the other fish. Mm, Wait, who's that? Judas is eating all the other no, fish? No, no. Some bad. Satan, Satan, I yeah. suppose. Oh. You know, Lucifer? So the baptized are swimming towards the altar, but there's bigger, meaner fish that are trying to prevent them. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So in any case, baptism, very important. Water, very important. Therefore, the place of baptism, the baptiz- baptistry or the baptismal font, should in some way express the importance of all these things, just like an altar would express the importance uh, yeah, of Yeah, I was just to say, an there. altar is the same thing. And, you know, we talked a little bit about Ambo. You know, these things should, you know, they should look like what they convey. Right. So the general introduction to the Christian, to Christian initiation, why can't I speak? What am I saying, Chris? General induction to Christian, Christian initiation, initiation says it should be worthy of the sacrament that is celebrated there. So, you know, if you, if a Martian came down and said, you pour water on your head and you become a new child of God, accessible to eternal life. 
how do I make that known in architecture? This should be like the most important looking thing in the world. We're so used to baptism, we don't think twice about it. So there's a few things to think about. Um, that's a, a I don't know if a Martian would be concerned with that right away, but let's continue. Well, that's what the uh, that <laughs> Vatican um, observatory guy some asked. Somebody asked him, "What would you do oh, if brother you, guy if you found a, if an alien were discovered?" Yeah, he yeah, said, "Brother guy." What did he say? He'd baptize him. He said, "Baptize him." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if we found life on other planets, what do you do? Baptize him. Great. You know, well, notice what what the big uh, search is for on Mars. Is it water Mars or is it Mercury? Water. It's water. Yeah. Because they're looking for Mercury on Mars. <laughs> if there's water there's life right so so baptistry and font chris are they the same you read this article uh, i did that's a long time ago yeah. no dennis they are not the they same. they are not the same although most people use them pretty interchangeably Inter- yeah i thought they were the same thing but properly speaking a baptistry before i don't know the last hundred years or so was a building so baptistries would be separate buildings outside of a cathedral. For many centuries, the cathedral was the only place where you could get baptized. So there'd be one baptistry in a city. So if you go to Florence, for instance, right in front of the cathedral is the big baptistry. It's a big building or, with a font inside of it. Or Pisa. Pisa has one right next to the Leaning Tower. A lot of older cities have baptist, baptistry buildings. Uh, St. John Lateran has one because it was the place of baptism in Rome. But not so much anymore. They don't really exist. This, well, they I, can, I but generally you can get baptized in any parish. So uh, ideally, people would come to the cathedral and be initiated at the bishop's church by the bishop then. Yes. Yeah. And I don't know at what hmm. point that permission was extended out to any priest in any parish. But for, for many centuries, maybe in the patristic era and even early Middle Ages, it was a baptistry as one place of baptism. So it was not only a place where you were baptized, it was a place where you became a citizen because you had to take an oath in the name of Jesus Christ that you would uphold the law. So it was a civic building and it was a sacred building as well back when things were all intertwined. So the baptistry, properly speaking, is the building. The font is the container or whatever it is, where the water is and where you get poured. Do you remember uh, David Fagerberg uh, talking about this in one of the talks? He, he was one of the campus lecturers a couple years ago. He has this, this great vision that he says, the waters of the Red Sea and the waters of creation and the water from the rock and the water from the Jordan, all this Old Testament water flows downhill until it gathers and it pours into yeah, it. Like it's a gathered. watershed, yeah. It's, it's gathered in the, in the font. Hmm. So all of that Old Testament water is pooled up now inside of the font, which is in the baptistry. So when you go through that, you're going through all of that meaning from the Old Testament. Yeah, that's cool. That's very cool. Should have put that in your article, Dennis. Oh, yeah, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, most people think a baptismal font has to be in the church now, but the the, um, general introduction to Christian initiation admits the possibility that it can be a separate building. And part of the idea was that you would be not a child of God or not a baptized member of the church, and you're outside the church. So you, you're still outside the church, then you get baptized, then you have your triumphal entry into the church building. Yeah, well, you talked about being a gateway sacrament. So mm-hmm. if, if that's what it is internally, where externally could it be placed along these same lines? In the narthex? At the gateway, yeah. at mm-hmm. the door. And so you, that's the gateway into the the, the mystical body, it, so you would sacramentalize that unseen reality well, that's where by the, putting the baptistry or the font. At the that's where the holy water fonts are usually right at the gateway. Right, because they, they, yep. they, they are actually us. little fonts. Oh. Because, you know, if you're careful about it in some of the older churches, you'll see that the stoops or the holy water stoops on the walls are made of the same material as the baptistry. So it's sort of taking the font and making it a little one and putting it on the wall so you don't have So it's to. like a superscript font? It's pretty super, pretty super. <laughs> but you know, there is some funny terminology about baptism, Chris. There are two lawful ways to baptize people in the Roman Catholic uh, Church. Do you know what they are? 
Yes, uh, the one is called uh, pouring yes. or infusion. Is yes. infusion the, the word? Yeah. Yes. And that's uh, pouring water over the head. And the other is... Or the whole body, but or the whole body. But it has the to, Yeah, the key is it's got to be on the head some, mm-hmm. somehow. And the other is uh, called submersion. Or immersion or is usually immersion. what people say. And it, there is a little confusion about that because people say we need a submersion baptistry, but that's not the term the church uses. They talk about immersion, which doesn't mean you're 100% underwater necessarily, because then you'd need you know five or six feet deep. See, but that would be submersion, would be completely underwater. Right. And that's not really either specified or requested by the church. Nothing wrong with it. But immersion, it it, they talk about immersion, which means you're substantially wet. So you're kind of, you could be up to your knees, or your waist in water, and the water's poured over your head. And when you're done, you're pretty wet, but that church does not use the word submersion really for the But even part. in that case, right? So let's say you're standing up to the waist or up to your knees or something like that. The water has to go on the head. Right. Yeah. Okay. You can't just go up to your ankles and say you've been, you know, you've been baptized. Okay. So let's just, just to get this straight, because it is confusing. So you could have water poured and that's called pouring or infusion. You could have on the other, I guess, extreme, maybe a total... Submersion, okay, or you kind of have this middle territory where your uh, part of your body is standing in mm-hmm. water, and then the water is poured over your head. Right, but I think even the immersion presumes there's a pouring. Oh yeah, it ha- yeah. So it you know, sometimes you see people go out to the Jordan River and they just dunk their heads underneath. There's no pouring; that they're wet, but the water hasn't oh, been poured on their. No, on their I think heads. that's that, that counts. That would, sure, uh-huh. absolutely. But okay. the, I think the key point is there has to be water on the head. So sometimes, you know, if you don't want, you know, the deacon or the priest doesn't want the baby to cry, so he just kind of dips him up to the waist in the font mm-hmm. or something like that. I think most canonists would say that's that's not a valid baptism because it's not mm. on the head. So make sure the, the water gets on the head. But the basic distinction is you can either have substantial amounts of water get seriously wet, that's immersion, or you can have water poured across the head, as often happens with infants, that's pouring or infusion. Mm. And so that those are the two terms that are out there uh, now. Now, Chris, you probably know the liturgical but establishment. But Jesse definitely does not know. <laughs> okay. Well, Chris is part of the liturgical establishment. So uh, which is, what does the liturgical establishment tend to prefer, pouring or immersion? Well, uh, liturgy types are have a great appreciation for signs and symbols. For the full depths of So signs. they would want, I suppose ideally, they would want as much water possible. Right. If so you're getting want, washed, you should feel like you're getting washed, not just yeah. three drops of water on your If you're going to if you're going to drown spiritually, you, you want to be under that water, boom, you know, yeah. maybe, you know, hold it under there mm-hmm. for a few seconds until mm-hmm. you I don't know if you start to panic. I wouldn't do until that until you it, start to see the bubbles come up a bit. Right. So what most of the church documents tend to say, although you don't have to baptize by immersion that at least it should be available or it should be possible to have immersion. So that's what the Book of Blessings says. Uh, and the, gen- the general instruction, introduction to Christian initiation says uh, immersion is a more suitable symbol of participating in the death and resurrection of Christ. So there you go. Now, sometimes people say, does there have to be moving water or running water? Because they talk about living water. And sometimes they think living water is moving water. <laughs> it's not necessarily the same. Remember that Kavanaugh quip that living water doesn't mean that there are things living in it? <laughs> <laughs> they never have. <laughs> sometimes those the stoops. I've seen some funky. I've seen some holy water fonts that have been. You know, and I think, too, in the extraordinary form, to bless holy water, you had, for baptism, for example, uh, you would pour in. Uh, oil. oil, yeah, and I mean that's food stuff that gets a little. Get you know, so nasty, imagine, yeah. and I think it was supposed to. Can you just get that oil at like Costco, or does it? 
<laughs> so imagine you pour this oil in, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be there for the year, and it's kind of this film. Mm. So anyway, uh, living water, yeah, water yeah. that's running. But living you water means the Holy Spirit. It's not yeah. the same thing yeah. as moving water. Does moving water signify the activity of the Holy Spirit? Maybe. It's not required, but the Book of Blessings does kind of recommend that it be a mm-hmm. fountain of running water, which leads to people all kinds of questions. Is it noisy? Is it distracting? Does it make the kids need to go to the bathroom when they hear this water falling all the time? So uh, those are the kind of questions that come up Real when I work, work with uh, parishes. And um, you don't want it to be stagnant, so it could move with a filter, but it doesn't have to necessarily pour and make noise. So anyway. Turn it off during Mass, though. Oh, but then people miss the signifying value of the living water. So these are the questions that people come up with. But it's not mandatory that it must move, although the Book of Blessings does sort of recommend that it's a good thing to do. The Book of Blessings recommends that you have a font that has moving water in mm-hmm. it. Oh. They call it a fountain of running water. So Well, describe this a little more. Uh, Dennis, you've had a hand in designing some of these things. So it's, I mean, it's, it's a font that is often pouring into a larger Right. So imagine area. you have your old school baptismal font that is little, you know, that they use for infants. And then that's connected to the edge of a, a kind of big, nicely ornamented tub that is where someone could stand and get their immersion baptism. And sometimes the water pours from one to the other, and it, it's like a little fountain going that way. We solved that problem in a couple of churches with an architect friend of mine, David Maleka. By, we had this uh, stone piece that came down from the the little font, and it, the water actually ran down the marble, so it was moving, but it wasn't dropping Splashing. and making a lot of noise. Mm-hmm. And so they had their moving water without sending all the kids to the bathroom every time, or, you know, interfering with fathers. I like that option. Or, or whatever. Uh, okay, now, fonts are almost, there's almost no description in the church documents about what they should look like, what they should be made of, what shapes they should be, where they should be. There's just some general kind of things that come up from the tradition. Octagon. Octagons. Why octagons, Chris? Why octagons, Jesse? You said it. Yeah. Uh, so the God created the all, everything in seven days, and the eighth day is when His Son died and rose again. Right. So right? there's six days of creation. The seventh day, God rests, and what's after that? The eighth it's day, day. One. Right? It's the day of eternity and. Oh, paradise. we start over again. <laughs> well, it is kind of because yeah. it's it's a day of light. It's yeah. If seven symbolizes time, then what's eight signify? What comes after time? After time. Eternity. Over, di- over time. time. If, seven, if seven signifies nature, what's eight signify? Super nature. Super nature. Better Certainly. than nature. Mm-hmm. Right. And six is to go back to the day of the animals being created. That's why it's associated with the mark of the beast if you're returned. Oh, to, I didn't know that. That is yeah, then that's, that's where you wow, get six fascinating. six from. How many folks were in the ark? Eight. 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 Oh, really? And they yeah. were the source of new life after the flood, so they were mm-hmm. rescued from the destructive power of water. You taught me that, Chris, so... Thank you for that. But, you know, the whole, the whole idea of a centralized shape, like a circle, a square, or a Greek cross, which is a cross and like a plus sign, that is known as a tolos in architectural terms, and it means a centralized thing, and it's a place where something would be venerated, so that burial mounds are often round, or if you see tombs in the old um, cities, they'll be round or square. Baptismal fonts are often round or octagonal because they're this marker of something being venerated, and what's being venerated there is the death and rebirth rebirth of the person being baptized. So does it have to be round? No. Does it have to be octagon? No. But does it make sense? Sure. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now, how about the relationship between a font and the altar, or an ambo? Okay, so doesn't the altar have to be baptized when it's... Well, not how it's treated, but okay. like, 
what it's made of, where it is. Like on the floor plan of a church? Yeah, or, where, or what it looks like. So we've we talked about the relationship to the door, but mm-hmm. how? Well, it should look, maybe it should be made out of the same material as the altar and the embo? That is one uh, recommendation, that it, since it's one of the three principal liturgical furnishings and it leads to the Eucharist, that you could make it out of the same material as the altar and the embo, which gives you a nice unity of the principal things in the church. And so the question of where it goes is also one of the things, you know, baptistries used to be either in another building, and then in the 19th century, they'd be this little tiny font kind of off in a corner somewhere, or it might be in the edge of the vestibule in a little chapel there. And uh, in the 20th century, they're like, eh, let's put it in the way, so to speak. And where did they wind up very often? Um, near the altar, near the sanctuary? Well, that was a little later. Before that, they sometimes wind up in front of the front door, like in the center aisle of the church. Oh, okay. And many people still put them there, so it's kind of in the way of your entry to church, so you're reminded of your baptism. But then, Which is in the way of you getting into the church. Exactly. <laughs> right, literally, that's what it means yeah. by in the way, physically in the way of where you're going. But then there were some people like in the 80s and 90s, for some reason, because the, the font is supposed to be visible at the Easter Vigil, so people can see that what's going on with the baptism. That's kind of a practical thing. They though. would take the altar out of the sanctuary, put it in the center of the church, and put the font in the sanctuary where the, old, mm-hmm. where the tabernacle used to be, and then put the tabernacle in a side chapel. So, although that's not explicitly forbidden, it doesn't really make sense. Why would you? How would you argue against that? Because it's on the other side of the altar, right? Point. So Is first right? you have Eucharist, and then you have baptism, right? Is, is baptism the final destination of these rites of initiation, or is it, you know, is it yeah. sequentially illogical to so we pass the talk, altar? We talk a lot about you know the threshold of the church or the entrance of the church and the door. So, I mean, it would make more sense to have it near the entrance of the church, even if it's impractical for the one day of year that you do the Easter vigil and you have, you know, all these people there. Right. But, you know, it makes more sense to be near the entrance because that's what it's describing. We talked about this in a former podcast. Father Martis was always big on the different processions in baptism, that it goes mm-hmm. from the door to the ambo to the font to the altar. I mean, because you're entering on this pilgrimage to heaven, and that gets sacramentalizes in all these different stations that begin at the door and they end up at the altar. But where does it go in between? The right for baptism of children says the infant is led by the right from the doors of the church to the, yeah, to, doors, to the ambo, right? To the ambo because they hear the, hear word, the word of God. And then to the font. So you can't, have, you can't be baptized unless you know why you're being baptized, right? So let me tell you, come into the church. Let me tell you about Christ. Let me tell you about baptism. And then you go get baptized. And then you go to the Eucharist. So to get all those things out of whack, say, oh, well, first we'll show you the altar and then pass the altar and go to the font, just because it's visible in a theatrical sense doesn't necessarily make sense liturgically. So there are a number of churches in the 90s that kind of did that and they're still set up that way. I would discourage that if somebody asked me. Put you on the spot here. What's mm-hmm. the what's it look like at the and cathedrals are a little different in some ways. You know what they did there for the floor plan? In cathedrals? Well, at the new one in Knoxville, you mentioned that earlier. Do you know where the font is? I think I don't know the. Answer. I think it's in. Oh, I thought you were. I think it's in the back aisle, the back aisle of the church, at the back of the church in the near the entrance. I think so. I haven't been there yet. It's only opened four days ago. But I'm going to go visit. Why not? Road trip. Road trip. Ooh, a liturgy guy's road trip? Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. We could put big signs on the cars. Yeah. Say liturgy guys. Honk if you like liturgy. Yeah. <laughs> Some cans on strings. Yeah. Back. Griswold family vacation. Okay, so one, one last thing, then we'll wrap it up here. How would you design your baptismal font? What would it look like? I mean, literally, you're going to have an architect tell you, how should I make this? What would you say? Maybe you say, make it out of the same marble as the altar. That's a good start. But what else? 
design-wise, I would probably try to incorporate things that reflect what's happening. Mm-hmm. So there might be like um, where my where my daughter was baptized at Saint Alphonsus in Chicago. There was an image of John the Baptist. Right, that used to be that. required in in liturgical law that you had to have an image of John the Baptist. Not anymore. Hmm. So uh, you know maybe fish like we were talking about yep. before, water images, anything that's reflective of script, water images in scripture, um, anything reflective of the River of Jordan, anything like that. You sure you didn't read this article, Jesse? I, I really did not. This, I have Jesse. a little list here, yeah. Well, you know, the early church, uh, early baptistries and some of the early church mosaics have some really great things. They love the Jordan River. Sometimes they'll actually show the Jordan River personified as the little river god, and he'll have a, a jar and he's pouring the water out because Christ was baptized in the Jordan. So the Jordan itself has this particular place as an image of Christ's own baptism. And I know a lot of people who try to procure water from the River Jordan and then turn it into holy water and use that for baptism. It's a little muddy stream when you see it in person. I'm not sure that I'd I'd want that unless it was cleared out. But but everything you said, water, fish, images of the Trinity, anything that speaks of paradise, anything that has a quality of being eschatological, that's the heavenly glory of the end time, so mosaic. Um, in fact, I think we talked about this in another episode, but in a font that I helped uh, design, I recommended that they use fossiliferous stone. Do you remember talking about this? Uh, phospholiferous uh, is something that is... Fossiliferous. Easy is, for you to say. Is uh, something that is easily reflective of light. Fos- Not phosphorescent. Fossiliferous. Fossil. Oh. Oh, okay, fossils. It has fossils in it, right? So if a lot of stone that comes especially from the bottom of the ocean, like limestone, was created by the bodies of sea creatures falling in the bottom, and then the weight of the water compressed it over many millions of years, and it became limestone. So if you look at limestone very often, especially if it's polished, you can see little snail shells and stuff in it, little jellyfish. So uh, it's actually, it sounds expensive, but it's not. You can buy it at Home Depot or whatever. So at the bottom or of Or Pottery Barn. <laughs> <laughs> or Piggly Wiggly. Sam's Club. So at the bottom of this font, we, they had two different colors of stone in a sort of water shape, you know, S-curve shape. And the dark ones had little fossiliferous stone, little fossils. So these sea creatures that lived 100 million years ago are contributing liturgically to the the liturgical end of baptism by putting that hmm. in there. So you know, there are ways to think, um, not just functionally, like have a pipe sticking out of the wall, but a way to make the mystagogical reality evident uh, to everybody. So that's what we're talking about. These realities are kind of naked, so to speak. You know, this invisible intellectual understanding of becoming child of God, but how do you make that knowable to the eye? And a font has all this beautiful theology that a well-designed um, font should make clear to the eye as well. It should, someone should go over and say, what is that beautiful thing? Like that has never heard of baptism. And then they look for a booklet or they ask somebody, hey, what, what, what's this thing? Oh, that's baptistry. What's that? What's baptism? Oh, how do I get that? So that's where beauty leads to the inquiry about truth. And then truth leads to the desire to live that way. And that's where, where beauty leads you to Not, change your life. Nicely said, Dennis. Thank you. I give yeah. that credit to Hans Urs von Balthasar. Yeah. And if you want to read the article, I'll put it in the description of the show. You can read Dennis's full article on Autoratimus Bulletin. It was January 2018. Oh, it was a while ago. Well, a few months. <laughs> I mean, it was yesterday. I mean, it was, <laughs> for, I don't know. When, I don't know when this podcast is going on. So I'm going to stop trying to pretend all the time. That time exists in our podcast. That's why I only gave the date, Jesse. Not Dang it. Go that I already way. messed right. it up. All right. Should we answer a question? Yes. All right. So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. 
And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, this question is from John. I'm just going to go ahead and call him John John. John John the bear. John John is a bear? I didn't know that. Uh, Little John is a bear Mm -hmm. in the Robin Hood Mm -hmm. cartoon. John. John says... What does John say? What does John say? (laughs) He's just hanging here. (laughs) (laughs) You want me to say what John says? John says, a bishop has declared that self-communication in certain dioceses is not allowed. What should an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion do when there is remaining precious blood in the chalice after uh, everybody has gone through the line? There you go, Chris. Mm. What? First of all, self-communication is not means allowed. Giving what? yourself communion, right? Okay. So if you're an extraordinary minister, you see them go up to the altar at the, at the end. The priest will give the chalice first to one of the extraordinary ministers, and then the extraordinary minister will offer it to another extraordinary minister. So the extraordinary minister doesn't go to the altar and take the chalice themselves. That's a yeah, All the, the communion priest. goes through the hands of the priest to others. Right. Makes so, sense. So the question is, if you're an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion and you are offering the precious blood to people and there's some left when you're done, what do you do? Because if you finish it yourself, then it looks like you're self-communicating. And so is that self-communication and what should you do at that point? So... Apparently, there's bishop somewhere who said you shouldn't self-communicate ever, even in that situation. So, you know, it's a it's a nice thing to say we're going to preserve the rule of no self-communication. But uh, Chris and I looked it up here in the norms for Holy Communion under both kinds. And this is a USCCB document. So U.S. bishops, it's been approved by the Holy See. And in fact, now it, it has to be inserted in front of every Roman Missal. So this is where it could be found. What, what did we come across? Well, the, the primary principle is that the priest should consume all the precious blood that's left. And then he can be helped by the deacon or the priests. <clears throat> However, if there's so much, because there's a big church or something, it says when there are extraordinary ministers, this is number 52, by the way, when there are extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion, they may consume what remains of the precious blood from their chalice of distribution with the permission of the diocesan bishop. So that does imply that they just finish what's in the chalice that they have in their hands, and it's not really considered uh, self-communication. Correct, Chris? Yeah, I think that's right. It doesn't seem like it would be self-communication, at least in the same way that, let's say, an uh, extraordinary minister of Holy Communion just took the chalice off of the altar in the first place. But again, at the end, it said it's up to the diocesan bishop. So the diocesan bishop can say that extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion are not to consume what remains of the precious blood in the chalice. At all. At all. Or he can sort of regulate how it does happen. Right, right. So, But the priest is supposed to kind of understand how many people are there and how many people will be in. I mean, you can estimate how much wine to use when you're pouring the chalices, right? Oh, I think so. But even the best estimation, if you're... Uh, you can find that you're a communion minister or a deacon or whatever, and the last person's gone through, and there's a little bit of precious blood in there. So you would consume it if the bishop uh, gives that permission. Yeah. And I was even, in my training as an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion, told that if, if I could not finish it, there was too much just for my one person, that somebody else could help me. 
Oh, like the last communicant? N- no, that, like you as another extraordinary minister oh, of sure. Holy Communion. Let's say I had a lot left and you didn't have a yeah. lot left. You'd be pretty tipsy after Mass if right. you had a lot, right? Well, interestingly, you know, Redentiones Sacramentum, number 102, says that you shouldn't even distribute the precious blood at all if you can't have a good sense of how much wine you need to start with and therefore how much precious blood you'll have uh, left over. So it says if there's such a large number of communicates, communicants that it's difficult to gauge the amount of wine for the Eucharist, and there's a danger that, quote, more than a reasonable quantity of the blood of Christ remain to be consumed at the end, then you shouldn't really do under both kinds at all. Now, it's reasonable to presume that you've done this a few times, you can probably gauge it You know what well. to expect at the 1030 Mass on Sunday. But yep. if, say, you just have an open Mass, right, and people are coming at the last minute, and you don't know if it's going to be 100 or 1,000, that's probably just a time when you say, let's not communicate. Right, they would never kinds. do this at a Mass outside um, the Vatican in St. Peter's Square because it would just be ridiculous. Right. Okay. So the basic principle is preserve the proper decorum for the Blessed Sacrament, the proper honor and reverence to it, and the bishops say that the extraordinary ministers can finish the chalice that they've been using. And it's not self-communication, but the bishop can govern how that happens. All right. John, John, I hope that answered your question. John the Bear. And if you want to ask us a question, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. Thank you and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.